Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun. So glad you could join us today. So I'll remind you, you're listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. All right, let's get into it. Unfortunately, we got a couple of obituaries to start us off with. His first one is from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, April 3rd, 2023. Mark Russell, 1932 to 2023. Satirist showed DC how to laugh at itself. In a self-serious town, it was a point of pride for the piano-playing entertainer to make jokes about you, by Nardine Saad. Long-time political humorist Mark Russell, the wise-cracking piano player who skewered Washington's elite with pithy one-liners and upbeat tunes, has died. He was 90. The irreverent satirist died Thursday at home in Washington, D.C. of complications from prostate cancer, his wife Allison Russell told the Washington Post. Russell, a master of political satire with a rapier wit, was best known for his Mark Russell comedy specials that aired on PBS from 1975 to 2004, and for dispensing nonpartisan humor set to music behind a flag-draped piano. I sing songs at the piano and also talk, he told the Times in 1991. If people were just tuning in uh, for the first time, they had no idea who I was. There's a good chance that they would only like half the show because I'm an equal opportunity offender. That equal opportunity offending was basically cowardice, the affordable comic quipped. Wearing dark-rimmed glasses and a bow tie, Russell has been a familiar face uh, in the Capitol since the end of the Eisenhower administration, but he was catapulted to the national stage with his first PBS special in 1975. He also wrote a syndicated newspaper column and considered himself to be a political cartoonist for the blind. The bespectacled entertainer grew up in Buffalo, New York in the 1940s and 50s. He drew inspiration from radio comics Jack Benny and the acerbic Fred Allen, but idolized his uncle, a band singer with a staff orchestra on a local radio station and the only person in the family who had been an entertainer. Russell began taking piano lessons at age 7 and scored his first professional gig at 14, earning $10 playing piano with a bass player and a guitarist at an Italian restaurant on New Year's Eve. We knew 10 songs and kept playing the same songs over and over, he told the Times in 1991. He served in the Marines in the early 1950s as a radio operator stationed in Japan and Hawaii. Then he worked briefly at his father's gas station in Virginia, where his family moved shortly after he graduated from high school. Russell said he had no career goals then, but wanted to be in entertainment of some kind. He described his musicianship as too much of an embarrassment to be a serious jazz pianist, but he said he put those three chords that I know to pretty good use. He joked that he became a political satirist because he was living in Washington and it was just the expedient thing to do. If I lived in Detroit, I would talk about the auto business. The politicians were given such great respect everywhere, such reverence, and I came at them from a different perspective, he said in a separate Times interview. In the late 1950s, he was hired to perform in the bar at the Carroll Arms Hotel, which he described as a smoke-filled political hangout on Capitol Hill frequented by senators, congressmen, and lobbyists. I was hired just as a piano player and whatever else I could do, he said. 
I told jokes and did other people's material, but I couldn't get their attention until I started talking about what they did in politics. He usually acknowledged the heavyweights in attendance, figuring if they showed up, they wouldn't mind being made fun of, and eventually being stung by one of his barbs became a badge of honor, with many politicos appropriating his material themselves. Washington is a hotbed of joke thievery, Russell told the Times. My daughter heard some politician make a speech the other day, and she said there were three of there were three of the, my lines in it. He made a career booster. Boot, he made a career-boosting move to the Shoreham in 1961, which was the biggest, fanciest hotel in Washington at the time, and worked at its re- as its resident comedian for 20 years. He also appeared on the Merv Griffin Show, the Dean Martin Comedy World Series, and in a series of match game episodes in the 1970s and 80s. By then, he had taken his show on the road across the nation. He eventually played all 50 states, hitting North Dakota last in 1991, and wrote funny stories and observations about each one that he compiled into a book. Last week, I hit my 50th state, he told the Times in 1991. North Dakota held up for some reason all these years. I kept dropping hints on talk shows and things. I thought maybe nobody invited me because they didn't have public television. But then I thought about it for a while. Maybe they do have public television. Russell was hired and and lampooned both Democrats and Republicans, tilting his humor toward whoever's in power and supposing that it would it will even out on Judgment Day. It's strange. It shows I have no scruples. It's what it's what's known as the spineless middle ground, he joked. In addition to his wife, Russell is survived by three children from his first marriage, Monica Welch, John Russell, and Matthew Russell of Tucson, a brother, six grandchildren, and two great-grandchildren, according to the Post. That was Mark Russell, 1932-2013, to satirist showed DC how to laugh at itself, by Nardine Saad, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, April 3rd, 2023. All right, here is another obituary from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, April 4th, 2023. Seymour Stein. 1942 to 2023, from Madonna to Ramones, an ear for the adventurous. Talking Heads and the Pretenders were also among iconic acts on his Sire record label, by Stephen Thomas Erlewine. Seymour Stein, the record industry executive who helped shape the sound of 20th century pop music by signing the Ramones, Talking Heads, the Pretenders, and Madonna to his Sire label, died Sunday in Los Angeles. He was 80. The cause of death was cancer, said his daughter, Mandy Stein. Stein belonged to a rarefied group of music executives who gained fame on their own accord. His notoriety was so great that lasting the and lasting that the Scottish indie pop outfit Bell and Sebastian wrote a song chronicling his attempt to sign them to Sire in 1996, more than 20 years after the label's golden era. Uh, began with the release of the first album by punk originators, the Ramones, in 1975. Sire released some of the most adventurous music from punk and new, uh, new wave acts. Stein brought the Talking Heads, a cerebral CBGB <clears throat> cohorts of the Ramones, to Sire in 1976, then expanded the label's roster with Chrissy Hines' Swaggering Pretenders and the noirish vistas of UK post-punk outfit Echo and the Bunnymen. All other Sire signings were overshadowed by Madonna, 
a New York-based singer whose stylish dance pop refashioned the sound and appearance of pop in the 1980s. Stein famously signed Madonna while laid up in a hospital bed, and she stuck with the label as she became the biggest pop star in the world. Stein's influence extended outside of Sire. While acting as president of the label, he stayed in that position until his retirement in 2018. He helped co-found the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1983. He was inducted into the institution in 2005. But before Stein was a mover and shaker, he and his passion for music helped change the contours of the industry. As an intern at the music trade magazine Billboard in 1958, he was part of the team that developed the Hot 100, the chart that became the industry standard. In his 2018 memoir, Siren Song, My Life in Music, Stein wrote, My business was turning great music into hit records. Stein was born Seymour Steinbingle in Brooklyn, New York on April 18, 1942. Popular music became the center of his life at an early age. In 2015, he said, from the time I was nine years old, I knew I wanted to be in the music biz. He made his first trip into the business when he was 13, asking Billboard if he could copy old pop, country, and R&B charts by hand. It took him two years, after which the magazine brought him aboard to write reviews. Stein joined Billboard after high school graduation. By the early 1960s, Stein had turned his attention two record labels. He interned with King Records, an R&B and country label based in Cincinnati that claimed James Brown as one of its biggest stars before becoming a staffer in 1961. Sid Nathan, the label's founder, suggested to Seymour he shorten his last name to Stein. He then joined Redbird Records, a New York-based label founded by songwriters Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller and, re and record men George Golder. Goldner. Specializing in girl group pop, its first big hit was Chapel of Love by the Dixie Cups, which went to number one in 1964. Redbird collapsed in 1966, leaving Stein to partner with Richard Gotterer, who had his own girl group pass, as co-songwriter and co-producer of The Angels My Boyfriend's Back. The pair formed Sire Records in 1966, opening an office in the Brill Building. Initially, Sire concentrated on licensing recordings from British or European acts from the, for the U.S. market. While Sire stayed afloat for several years, it mounted to a little more than a cult label, releasing British blues and prog rock. Occasionally, it had re released a noteworthy record, a couple of early Fleetwood Mac sessions when the band was led by Peter Green, plus albums by Climax Blues Band, blues band Barkley, James Harvest, and Kevin Ayers. Commercial success did not arrive until 1973, when Focus, a group of Dutch art rockers, channeled their eccentricities into Hocus Pocus, a bombastic blast of neoclassism with the yodeled hook. It was weird enough to become a novelty smash, reaching the top 10 on the Billboard Hot 100. The song's success shifted the power structure at Sire. Guttenheyer decided to leave the label while Stein concentrated on finding new recording artists. Tipped off by his wife Linda, she'd soon wind up as the band's manager, Stein hit Pater with the Ramones, the leather-clad purveyors of Buzzsaw Bubblegum. The Ramones' eponymous 1975 debut didn't sell initially, but helped give, but helped give Stein a direction for Sire. 
He then would steer the label toward punk and its offshoots. Sire's next notable signing was the Talking Heads, a kinetic quirky outfit led by David Byrne that became one of the signature bands of post-punk and new wave. Warner Brothers acquired Sire in 1978, but Stein remained the label's president, helping shape a distinctive identity for the imprint. He would sign such emerging labels Rough Trade and 4AD. This meant Sire was the American home for such major acts as the Smiths, Depeche Mode, Echo and the Bunnymen, Eurasia, and My Bloody Valentine. Sire showcased its roster on a series of CD compilations called Just Say Yes that now stand as time capsules of pre-Nirvana alternative rock. Although Sire ruled the underground, it was also the home to uh, Madonna, one of the biggest pop stars of the 1980s and 90s. Stein signed her based on a demo for everybody. In short, her self-titled 1983 debut generated four dance hits before Lucky Star and Borderline brought her into the pop top 10. After 1984's Like a Virgin, she'd be a fixture in pop culture, her success allowing Sire to branch, her, branch into hip-hop with Ice-T and Country with K.D. Lang. Sire became, also became home to Lou Reed's comeback, which started with New York, his label debut from 1988. Stein remained active in the 1990s, but Sire wasn't as central to the culture after the rise of grunge early in the decade. Over the next decades, it would develop notable acts such as Tegan and Sarah and Regina Spector. But by the 2010s, its cultural footprint had diminished. Stein continued to work at Sire and at Warner. He became a senior A&R executive for the parent label in 2013 until his retirement in 2018. Stein is survived by his daughter Mandy, a filmmaker specializing in music documentaries, three grandchildren, and Anne Wiederker, his sister. His former wife Linda was murdered by her assistant in 2007. The couple's other daughter, Samantha Jacobs, died of brain cancer in 2013. That was Seymour Stein, 1942-2013, from Madonna to Ramones, An Ear for the Adventurous, by Stephen Thomas Erlewine. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, April 4th, 2023. Alright, and now for a couple of the Israel stories. First from the world section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, April 7th, 2023. Tensions rise at Passover as rocket fire hits Israel. Militants salvo from Lebanon and Gaza after a police storming of mosque raises fears of a wider conflict. From the Associated Press. Jerusalem. Militants fired a barrage of rockets from Lebanon at Israel on Thursday, the Israel military said, forcing people across Israel's northern front frontier into bomb shelters, wounding at least one person and ratcheting up regional tensions as the nation celebrated the Jewish Passover holiday. Israel's military said 34 rockets had been fired across the border and that 25 were shot down by its Iron Dome aerial defense system. Five more fell inside Israeli territory, and the rest were being investigated, it added. The army said it response, its response would come after a situational assessment and meeting by Israel's security cabinet later Thursday. The Iran-backed military group Hezbollah holds power in much of southern Lebanon, a flashpoint with Israel for Israeli forces. Thursday's rockets fire raised fears of a wider conflagration. Over the last two days, tensions have already skyrocketed 
at Jerusalem's most prominent holy site and along the Israel's border with the Gaza Strip. The United Nations peacekeeping force in South Lebanon, known as UNIFIL, said in a statement that there had been multiple rocket launches from southern Lebanon toward Israel and that the Israeli army had informed UNIFIL of the activation of its Iron Dome defense system in response. The current situation is extremely serious, said Major General Araldo Lazaro, the head of the peacekeeping force, adding that he had been in touch with both Lebanese and Israeli authorities. UNIFIL urges restraint and to avoid further escalation. Earlier on Thursday and late Wednesday night, Palestinian militants in Gaza had fired rockets toward an Israel in protest over an escalation in tensions and clashes at the Holy Al-Aqiza Mosque com compound in the heart of Jerusalem's old city. No faction in Lebanon claimed responsibility for the salvo of rockets, which set off air raid sirens across Israel's north. Israeli media estimated the barrage to be larger than previously, previous launches from Lebanon in recent years. Uh, Lebanese security officials, who spoke on condition of anonymity because they were not authorized to brief the media, said the rockets have been fired from the area of a Palestinian refugee camp, suggesting the rockets had been fired at Israel by Palestinian militants based in Lebanon. Israel and Hezbollah fought a month-long war in 2006 that ended inconclusively. Since then, the border has remained tense, but mostly calm. Palestinian militants have also launched rockets into Israel on several occasions, drawing quick but limited Israeli retaliation. Israeli critics reported that a 19-year-old man was hit by shrapnel and mildly wounded, while a 60-year-old woman was injured after falling after she sprinted to a bomb shelter. Videos on social media showed massive plums of dark smoke uh, billowing from uh, Israel's northern hills and streaks through the sky left by the Iron Dome system. Widely circulating photos showed shrapnel that struck a street in the northern Israeli town of Shlomi and at least one building with its windows blown out. Lebanon's state-run national news agency reported that Israel tanks along the border fired shells toward two southern Lebanese towns near the Rashida Palestinian refugee camp in retaliation, a claim denied by the Israeli military. The Palestinian militant group Islamic Jihad hailed the rockets as a heroic operation against the Israeli crimes in the Al-Aqiza Mosque. The leader of the Palestinian Hamas group that rules Gaza, uh, Ismail Haniyeh, also arrived in Beirut on Wednesday, Lebanese state media reported. The Al-Aqiza Mosque compound is the third holiest site in Islam that stands on a hilltop known to Jews as the Temple Mount, revered as the holiest site in Jerusalem. Conflicting claims over the site have spilled into violence before, including a bloody 11-day war two years ago between Israel and Hamas. For the last two nights, a volatile time during which the Islamic holy month of Ramadan and the Jewish holiday of Passover overlap. Palestinians have tried to barricade themselves in the mosque in protest over threats by religious Jews to sacrifice animals at the uh, sacred site and over perceived Israeli restrictions on Islamic pr uh, prayer. Palestinians have been trying to pray overnight at the mosque, which authorities typically permit only during the last 10 days of Ramadan. In the last few days, 
Israeli police have stormed into the mosque to evict worshippers, firing tear gas and stun grenades and fiercely beating Palestinians who set up firecrackers and hurled stones. Israeli authorities controlled act, control access to the area, but the compound is administered by Islamic and Jordanian officials. Hezbollah condemned the storming of the mosque, calling it a flagrant violation of believers in Jerusalem that breached religious, moral, and human values. Muslim leaders across the Middle East criticized the Israeli actions in Al-Aqsa. Al uh, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, whose country recently reconciled with Israel and restored full diplomatic ties, condemned the violence in a television interview late Wednesday. Interventions and threats against the historical status and spirituality of Al-Aqsa Mosque, as well as the Palestinians' right to life and religious beliefs, must come to an end. Erdogan told Turkey's 24 TV. That was tensions rise at Passover as rocket fire hits Israel from the Associated Press. Out of the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, April 7, 2023. All right, here's one more from the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, April 8, 2023. Three killed in attacks in Tel Aviv, West Bank. Outbreak of violence heightens tensions as Ramadan, Passover, and Easter converge. By Isabel Debris. Jerusalem. Palestinian militants carried out a pair of attacks on Friday, killing three people and wounding at least seven as tensions soared after days of fighting at Jerusalem's most sensitive holy site. Earlier in the day, retaliatory Israeli airstrikes hit Lebanon and the Gaza Strip, sparking fears of a broader conflict. Israeli authorities said an Italian tourist was killed and five Italian British citizens were wounded when a car rammed into a group of tourists in Tel Aviv, Israel's commercial hub. In a separate incident, two Israeli women were shot to death near a settlement on the occupied West Bank. A spasm of violence in Israel and the West Bank heightened fears of an even more intense surge with the rare convergence of the Holy Muslim Month of Ramadan, the Jewish Passover holiday, and Easter now underway. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said he was calling up all reserve forces and Israel's border police to confront the terror attacks. Israel had unleashed rare airstrikes on Lebanon and bombarded the Gaza Strip on Friday morning. But later in the day, there were signs that both sides were trying to keep the hostilities in check. Fighting on Israel's northern and southern borders subsided after dawn, and midday prayers at the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem passed peacefully. The violence erupted after Israeli police raided the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem earlier in the week, sparking unrest in the contested capital and outrage across the Arab world. Militants fired an unusually large rocket barrage at Israel from the southern Lebanon from southern Lebanon on Thursday, some of the heaviest and most serious cross-border violence since Israel's 2006 war with Lebanon's Hezbollah militants. In the Tel Aviv car attack Friday, the driver rammed into a group of people near a popular seaside park, police said. Israel's rescue service said a 30-year-old Italian man was killed, while five other British and Italian tourists, including a 70-year-old man, and a 17-year-old girl were receiving medical treatment for mild to moderate injuries. Police say they shot and killed the driver of the car. They did not immediately disclose his identity. The Italian Foreign Ministry expressed horror and profound dismay at the attack. 
The West Bank shooting killed two sisters in their 20s and seriously wounded their 45-year-old mother near an Israeli settlement in the Jordan, Jordan Valley, Israel officials said. The women killed were British citizens, the Foreign Office said. The family lived in the Efrat settlement near the Palestinian city of Bethlehem, said Oded Revivi, the settlement's mayor. Medics said they dragged the unconscious women from the smashed car, which appeared to have been pushed off the road. No group claimed responsibility for either attack. The Hamas militant group that rules Gaza praised both assaults as a response to Israel's crimes against Al-Aqiza Mosque on, and worshippers. On Tuesday, police there arrested and beat hundreds of Palestinians who responded by hur hurling rocks and firecrackers at, at officers. Friday's airstrikes on neighboring Lebanon targeted Hamas militant sites, the Israeli military said, accusing the group of firing the the nearly three dozen rockets that slammed into open areas and towns in northern Israel on Thursday. The bombardment seemed designed to avoid drawing in Hezbollah, the Iran-backed Shiite group that Israel considers its most immediate threat. There were no reports of serious casualties from the airstrikes, but several people in the southern Lebanese town of Kualili, including Syrian refugees, say they were lightly wounded. I immediately gathered my wife and children and got them out of the house, said Kualili resident Bilal Suleiman. A flock of sheep was killed when the Israeli missiles struck a field near the Palestinian refugee camp of Rashidieh, according to an Associated Press photographer. Other airstrikes hit a bridge and a power transformer near nearby Malia and damaged an irrigation system. In the Gaza Strip, Israel's military pounded what it said were weapons, produ weapons production sites and underground tunnels belonging to Hamas, which rules the Palestinian enclave. A children's hospital in Gaza City was among the sites sustaining damage, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry. After the retaliatory strikes, Israelis living along the southern border returned home from bomb shelters. Most missiles that managed to cross into Israeli territory hit open areas but one landed in the town of Sidorot, sending shrapnel slicing into a house. There were no reports of casualties on either side of the southern border. The Israeli military said everyone wanted to avoid a full-blown conflict. Quiet will be answered with quiet, said spokesman Lieutenant Colonel Richard Hecht, a Qatari official, speaking on condition of anonymity, said the, em the, e the emirate was mediating. Even as a fragile calm took hold of the Lebanese and Gaza borders, the West Bank remained volatile. Violence has surged to new heights there, uh, there in recent months, with Palestinian health officials reporting the, reporting the start of 2023 to be the most deadly for Palestinians in two decades. Nearly 99 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli fire in the West Bank since the start of the year, at least half of them affiliated with militant groups, according to an Associated Press tally. During that time, 17 people had been, had been killed in Palestinian attacks on Israelis, all but one of them civilians. After the deadly shooting in the West Bank, Netanyahu and Defense Minister Yoav Gallant toured the site and vowed to catch the attacker. It's just a matter of time, and not much time until we settle the score, Netanyahu said. He added his security cabinet had passed a series of measures overnight. We acted in Lebanon, we acted in Gaza, 
We beefed up forces in the field, he said. Al-Aqiza has long been a nexus for the, of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and, is, and the skirmishes between Palestinian worshippers and Israeli police at the Holy compa- Compound this week spiraled into a regional confrontation. The mosque sits on a hilltop sac- sacred to both Muslims and Jews. In 2021, an escalation triggered by clashes there spilled over into an 11-day war between Israel and Gaza's Hamas rulers. Before dawn, prayers for, uh, dawn, uh, for dawn prayers Friday, chaos erupted at an entrance to the Esplande as Israeli police wielding batons descended on crowds of Palestinian worshippers who chanted slogans praising Hamas as they tried to squeeze into the site. Later, people leaving prayers staged a large protest on the limestone courtyard shouting against Israel and waving Hamas flags. Israeli police said they forced their way into the compound in response to masked suspects who threw rocks toward officers at a gate. Israeli authorities control access to the area, but the compound is administered by Islamic and Jordanian officials. The unrest comes at a delicate time for Jerusalem's old city, which was teeming with pilgrims from around the world. The Christian faithful retraced the route Jesus is said to have taken for Good Friday. Jews celebrated Passover, and Muslims prayed and fasted for Ramadan. There was three killed in attacks in Tel Aviv, West Bank, by Isabel Debris from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, April 8, Saturday, April 8, 2023. Debris writes for the Associated Press. All right, here's a world story from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, April 3rd, 2023. Blinking calls on Russia to release reporter. Secretary of State has rare conversation with Moscow counterpart Sergei Lavrov by Eric Tucker and Matthew Lee. Washington. Secretary of State Anthony J. Blinken in a phone call has urged his Russian counterpart to immediately release a Wall Street Journal reporter who was detained last week as well as another imprisoned American, Paul Whelan, the State Department said Sunday. The appeal came in a rare conversation between the diplomats since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In the call with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, Blinken conveyed grave concerns over the Kremlin's decision of journalist Evan Gershkovich on allegations of espionage, according to a State Department summary of the conversation. Blinken called for Gershkovich's immediate release. Blinken also sought the immediate release of Whelan, who was wrongfully detained, the statement said. U.S. officials said they were considering a similar determination for Gershkovich that could be made at any time. Should that happen, his case will be largely transferred to the office of the U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for a Hostage Affairs. Whelan, a Michigan corporate security executive, has been imprisoned in Russia since December 2018 on espionage charges that the U.S. government has said are baseless. He's serving a 16-year sentence. Blinken and Lavrov also discussed the importance of creating an environment that permits diplomatic missions to carry out their work, according to the State Department. The FSB, Russia's top security agency and successor to the KGB, alleged that Gershkovich 31 was collecting information on an enterprise of a military-industrial complex. Russian authorities detained him last week. It is the first time a U.S. correspondent has been held on spying accusations since the Cold War. In its summary of the phone call, 
Russia's foreign ministry said Lavrov drew Blinken's attention to the need to respect the decisions of the Russian authorities about Gershkovich, who was caught red-handed. Moscow did not provide evidence. The Wall Street Journal has adamantly denied the allegations and demanded Gershkovich's release. President Biden on Friday told reporters that, uh, that his message to Russia is, let him go. The Kremlin said Lavrov told Blinken it was unacceptable for U.S. officials and Western news media to continue whipping up excitement and politicizing the journalist's detention. His further fate will be determined by the court, the Kremlin said. Emma Tucker, the Wall Street Journal's editor-in-chief, said it was gratifying and reassuring to learn of Blinken's call because it shows that the U.S. government is taking the case right up to the top. The journal has been unable to get messages to the reporter or learn of any official information about him, she told CBS's Face the Nation. U.S. consular officials have requested a visit with Gershkovich, but no announcement of such access has been made. Officials said they were hopeful consular access could be arranged in the coming weeks, but could not speak to when that might happen. Tucker said she is hopeful that a lawyer might be able to meet with Gershkovich this week. In the meantime, the journal has been pressing constantly for reassurance that he's not being mistreated in any way. Representative Michael R. Turner, <clears throat> Republican of Ohio, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, noted that the U.S. government has advised citizens to leave Russia. This is not unexpected in that Russia is acting as an illegal state at this point. There are no laws or rules or intentional norms that they are following, Turner told CNN's State of the Union. In alleging that U.S. officials and news media are hyping Gershkovich's detention, Russian officials are reprising a theme they used in the apprehensions of basketball star Brittany Griner and other U.S. citizens. The Kremlin has said it prefers to resolve such cases quietly and has emphasized the need to follow Russia's judicial process. Often that means there is no chance of progress in U.S. efforts to free detained citizens until formal charges are filed, a trial is held, a conviction is obtained, and sentencing and appeals are completed. More than 30 news organizations and press freedom advocates have written to the Russian ambassador to the U.S. to express concern that Russia is sending a message that reporting in the country can be criminalized. Griner was detained for 10 months by Russian authorities before being released at a prisoner swap for a convicted arms dealer, Victor Bout, on Saturday, issued a statement with her wife, Cheryl, calling for the release of Gershkovich. Every American who was taken out is taken is ours to fight for, and every American returned is a win for us all, the couple said in a statement posted on Instagram. Interactions between the top U.S. and Russian diplomats have been rare since Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. Though they did have a brief conversation on the sidelines of the Group of 20 Conference of Foreign Ministers last month in India. It was the highest level in-person talks between the two countries since the war began. That interaction was the first contact since last summer when Blinken talked to Lavrov by phone about a U.S. proposal for Russia to release Wellen and Griner. Though Wellen was not included in the one-for-one -one swap that resulted in Griner's release, U.S. officials said they remained committed to bringing him home. There was blinking calls on Russia to release reporter by Eric Tucker and Matthew Lee. 
from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, April 3rd, 2023. Tucker and Lee write for the Associated Press. All right, now here is a story right here in our own backyard from the Los Angeles Times, Monday, April 3rd, 2023, Seeking Tolerance in Heart of Jewish L.A. Pico Robertson Neighborhood Offers Glimmers of Hope Amid Spike in Anti-Semitism, Other Hate Crimes by Tyrone Beeson. The Museum of Tolerance pierces your heart from the moment you step inside. Portraits of Holocaust survivors line a spiral walkway down to an exhibit immersing you in a world of grief. In a series of small rooms with dim theatrical lighting, human-scale dioramas brought to life with voice-over narration depict the rise of anti-Semitism in Nazi Germany and the systematic murder of six million Jews during World War II. My wish is that the world will learn that hatred is evil and only tolerance and love can bring peace on earth, reads the sentiment under the picture of Esther Stull, who arrived who survived the persecution of Jews in Krakow, Poland. Stull's plea for humans to reach for the best in themselves is hard to digest when outside this museum on the streets of Los Angeles, across California, and around the nation, it is hate, not love, that, is so, that so often rules the day. I've come to this museum and roamed its leafy neighborhood of one-story homes and mom-and-pop businesses feeling unnerved that age-old prejudices have found their legion of, ad of adherence in our time. Two shootings in February that targeted Jewish residents in the Pico-Robertson neighborhood, both victims survived, only deepened my alarm. I didn't want to wait until the next act of violence against Jews to happen here, or for yet another hate-fueled massacre elsewhere to be reminded of the yearning for acceptance that binds those who have historically endured discrimination and violence because of who they are. As Rabbi Abraham Cooper, Associate Dean of the Simon Weisenthal Center, the human rights organization that operates the museum, says, The time to roll up our sleeves is not, is not during crisis, but when things are quiet. But with Americans starkly divided along, along cultural fault lines, religious hatred, racism, and hostility toward the LGBTQ community abound, and with many reluctant to talk about the nation's legacy of injustice, do we have it in us to embrace one another's humanity? Guides usher, usher groups through the museum's sometimes eerie exhibits to give them a context for what they're seeing and hearing. At the end of a recent tour, Rabbi Yoshi Zimmerman tries to achieve a breakthrough with high school students who sit cross-legged and stone-faced on the floor. The group is a lot like L.A., a mix of races. They just spend time in the grimmest section of the Holocaust exhibit, where they had to file through brick tunnels into a stark windowless room that evokes a gas chamber. The 32-year-old rabbi tells them that they should not think of, of the repression of Jews as all in the past. Zimmerman asks them to consider the anti-Semitic online tirades by rapper Kanye West, now known as Ye. He has been blocked uh, from Twitter, but Ye continues to have more followers on Instagram, 18 million than the population of Jews in the entire world, about 15 million. His fan base remains strong despite its threats to go DEFCON 3 on Jewish people, one of several posts he eventually apologized for. Zimmerman moves on to other present-day events. When was the last time that someone came into a synagogue and shot it up and killed people? Two weeks ago, Zimmerman says. 
the last time a country closed its doors to Jews so that Jews were not allowed to live there. When was that? Two years ago. It's the same rhetoric, the same sentiments, the same ideas. The group remained silent. It's a lot to take in. Even for someone who arrived already knowing plenty about the Holocaust, the exhibit can feel overwhelming. Zimmerman plows ahead. What stops it from happening this time, he says, then answers his own question. The world you want to create, the world you want to live in, no one is going to make it but you. Many students vo voice sympathy for what happened to Jews in Nazi Germany, but some days are like this, are like this one, stunned faces and awkward silences. Sometimes Ollie gets our shrugs. And then there are the students who tell him they feel no moral responsibility to denounce biased crimes against Jews, which is all the more disheartening given that these incidents hit record levels nationwide in 2022, according to a new report by the Anti-Defamation League. I'd say 90% of the kids have not met a Jew at all, Zimmerman says. You'd be surprised at how many say, it doesn't affect me, it's not my people, I don't care. In those moments, Zimmerman tries to turn the table on his audience. If they came and said, we're going to kill and deport your family, would you hope that I would care? The reverse psychology tactic works, but only occasionally, Zimmerman says. For Cooper, 72, tolerance is more of an aspiration, a work that is perpetually in progress rather than a fact of life. It's a challenge to travel the globe, preaching about compassion alongside presidents, popes, and civic leaders when the voices of hate and resentment reverberate so forcefully in the unguarded echo canyons of people's online lives and in real life closer to the home to home in LA. In October, demonstrators hung a banner from a 405 freeway overpass that read Kanye is right about the Jews and raised their arms in a Nazi salute. Cooper arrived in LA in 1977 with dreams of making the world safer for his people and for all people. He joined Rabbi Marvin Heyer, the Weisenthal Center's chief executive and president, to help found the center alongside its namesake. Weisenthal, the late Ukrainian-born architect, Holocaust survivor, and Nazi hunter, with his wife, lost 89 family members to Hitler's crusade against Jews. One of them, he was asked at, at a university in Ohio in 1980, were you surprised at how many Nazis there were? Cooper recalls of his friend Weisenthal. He said, no, I was only surprised by how few anti-Nazis there were. That's the unnerving thing about the recent spike in hate crimes. In times of peril, it can be hard to know who has your back. The Pico-Robertson neighborhood occupies a part of L.A. that's a checkerboard of enclaves rather than a true melting pot, among them Ethiopian, Persian, and LGBTQ. Crossing paths with someone who doesn't look like you, trust you, worship the same God as you, or understand your story is almost inevitable. On traffic-clogged La Cienega and Robertson Boulevards, drivers speed through, a, through green lights, past weed dispensaries, car washes, and Orthodox Jewish men leaving synagogue in their black suits, white button-downs, and white-brimmed hats. At Sideshow Bookstore on La Cienega, the cramped aisles Aisles are piles high with volumes of Jude on Judaism and every genre of literature and nonfiction. A portrait of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. watches over owner Tony Jacobs, who greets customers with an offer of free espresso. It feels like we're living in a climate from a hundred years ago, says Jacobs, 62, who considers himself a secular Jew. It scares him, 
the way a baseless conspiracy theory or online rant can mysticize and cause so much harm. He worries that many Americans have given up on learning about people whose lives are different from their own. Even so, pockets of hope and trust endure. Down a nearby side street, two Jewish boys ages 8 and 10 sell homemade cookies and shout free lemonade to all who pass their block of mid-century cottages fronted by lush gardens. On the porch of one of the boys' homes, his mother explains why she is comfortable allowing the kids to set up their stand not far from where the shootings in February happened. Her willingness to talk is remarkable, given that I'm a black man in a neighborhood with few who look like me. Children need to be taught how to be vigilant, she says, but they also need to be free to enjoy being young. She refuses to allow the haters to change their way, the way her family lives. At Factors, a Jewish deli on Pico that's been in business for 75 years, neighborhood regulars and patrons from other parts of the city fill booths in the mirrored dining room. They chat and laugh while enjoying matzo ball soup, latkes, and towers of slow-roasted pastrami on rye bread. And yet, for some of those who are Jewish, it's hard to carry on business as usual in these uneasy times. One woman who lives nearby explains she's st she stopped wearing her Star of David pennant to make herself less conspicuous. The woman sitting next to her says she's so fearful of an anti-Semitic attack that she won't walk through the area alone. What tear tears at the restaurant's co-owner, Debbie Markowitz Ullman, is that many Americans believe the Holocaust was made up. All the photos and everything else we have as evidence and people still say it didn't happen, says Omen Sixty, who also lives in the neighborhood. That's just being naive, or maybe they don't want to know the truth. A framed portrait of her mother, Lily Markowitz, hangs at the back of the restaurant. Markowitz, who died in 2020 at age 94, survived the Holocaust, as did her late husband, Herman Markowitz. But a younger sister, younger brother, and father's uh, and father uh, perished in the Auschwitz concentration camp. Being the daughter of a Holocaust survivor, what my mother went through, that is not anything close to how bad that was, so I just feel like we've always had some anti-Semitism around, Ullman says. We actually get a lot of groups of students coming here after the Holocaust Museum, and my mother actually used to speak to them, Ullman says. She feels an obligation to continue sharing her family's story with customers who are willing to listen. They appreciate the history, knowing where the Jewish people came from in general and what they went through. We have the same prejudices against us as many others, as African Americans, as Asians, as all people who feel discriminated against. Alman has a daughter and son, 24 and 21. They grew up in a family that faithfully celebrated Jewish holidays, observed the Sabbath, time of rest, and took pride in the heritage of their people. At the same time, she instilled in her children that every human being deserves to be respected. It's a common sense lesson, written in the scriptures, reinforced by the elders the world over, and recited by Alman to her children their whole lives. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It doesn't matter if someone is Jewish or not Jewish. They should be treated the same. I'm all about equal respect, absolutely, she says. There are simple things uh, you can do to make people feel good that don't cost you anything but a second of your time. Cooper, 
the Weisenthal Center's associate dean has no illusions about how hard it will be to persuade the most recalcitrant troublemakers to embrace this spirit of mutual understanding. The best he can hope for, he says, is that the Museum of Tolerance will change one mind at a time. One section of the museum is dedicated to nonviolent movements such as for justice involving other oppressed people, including black Americans, to draw a link between the Jewish fight for acceptance and the broader struggle for justice. That's where I spot Maynard Fugent one day. I'm so gratified to see a black American taking in the lessons of another people's yearning to live freely in this world that I approach to say hello. Fujin, a fiction writer whose family migrated to California from the south, made a special trip from his home an hour away from Riverside. One reason he came was to remind himself that there is more than just the conflicts between us. When the 63-year-old reflects on the fact that Jewish people have survived thousands of years of persecution and thrived despite the atrocities inflicted upon them in modern times, he can't help but be awed by their perseverance. There is this essence of life that is stronger than the circumstances we're in, he says. To be in a state of elimination, and yet you come through it somehow, these are the heroes that I aspire to be. Fujin sits on a stool and loses himself in a quiet contemplation. Video projections on the wall illuminate him as he listens to King's stirring voice and the sound of black gospel choirs singing about my people's particular tribulations and the universal will over, will to overcome. That was Seeking Tolerance in Heart of Jewish Ally by Tyrone Beeson from the Los Angeles Times, Monday, April 3rd, 2023. All right, now here is something from the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, April 4th, 2023. Courage and compassion help change war refugees' destiny. Decades after a Ukrainian family hit a girl from Nazis, a community of strangers repays kindness by Kaylin Brown. Alex Bagansha lay in bed resting as he and a friend talked on the phone about whether Russia would invade Ukraine. It was before dawn on February 24, 2022. He hadn't slept. War was all they could think about. A few hours later, a thunderous explosion answered his question. A Russian missile struck near his home in Kharkiv in eastern Ukraine. It felt like it was right outside my window, the 18-year-old said. Bagansha, his parents, and his 14-year-old sister quickly loaded their car, loaded their dog, Lorik, and a few days' worth of clothes in their car. They joined a sea of traffic heading west. Everybody was scared, Bagansha said. Nowhere seemed to be safe. We didn't know what to do. For nearly a, a week, the family kept driving, sleeping in their car. Eventually, they reached Austria, where another refugee helped them get an apartment. We were lucky to find a place to live, Bocancha said. They were grateful to have made it out, but Bocancha's father, Andre, worried about his, the future for his son, who had been in the middle of his freshman year at Kharkiv National University. The father had hoped for a quick, en a quick end to the, to the war, uh, uh, would allow his the young man to continue with studies, but the fighting kept going. Then came an unexpected offer of help in a in a WhatsApp message from a woman 6,000 miles away in Tarzana. She knew something special about the family's history that would alter the course of his son's life. I never believed in destiny, Bocancha said, but after this situation, I've changed my mind. 
The day was bitterly cold as Zana Arshakanskaya Dawson desperately knocked on the door of the Bogancha home. It was winter 1941. Dawson, 14, had trudged from miles in the snow holding fast to five sheets of music. Frédéric Chopin's fantasy impromptu tucked under her clothing and her father's final words in her ears, I don't care where you do, just stay, just stay alive. That day, Nazi troops had rounded up Dawson and her family and sent them along with other Jews on a 12-mile march toward a ravine at the southern edge of Kharkov, as the city was then known. Just a mile from the destination, Dawson's father bribed a guard with a gold pocket watch to let his daughter escape. She fled, hiding in a crowd of onlookers, never to see her parents or grandparents again. They, along with 16,000 others, were executed on the edge of the ravine known as Jobitsky Yar. Dawson sought refuge at the home of a non-Jewish classmate, Nikolai Bokancha. She hoped his family, whom she knew as good-hearted people, would let her in. When his mother answered the door, she pulled Dawson inside to safety. Two days later, the Bogancha family heard that Dawson's 12-year-old sister, Frina, was nearby hiding with another family. They took her in too. Frina, who died in 2019, never revealed how she escaped. For two weeks, the girls hid in an underground fruit cellar whenever they were spooked by an unsuspecting noise or visit. But the sisters were precocious piano players and local celebrities. Everyone knew they were Jewish. What if a neighbor spotted them? They needed a new plan. They adopted new birthdays and names. Zana became Anna and Frina became Marina. The Bogantas helped them devise a story to explain why they were suddenly orphans. Their imaginary father was a Russian army officer killed in action and their mother had died in a bombing. The Bogantas arranged for a horse cart to take the girls to the city outskirts. From there, the girls made their way to an orphanage where a piano tutor tuner eventually heard Dawson play. He introduced the two girls to a theater director who was in charge of entertaining German soldiers. The sisters performed for them throughout the rest of the war, securing their survival. Years later, after the sisters immigrated to the U.S., after they attended the Juilliard School of Music in New York, and after Dawson married and began to teach music at Indiana University, she told the story to her son, Greg Dawson, who wrote a book about her experience, Hiding in the Spotlight, a musical prodigy story of survival. I was not playing for them, Dawson told her son. I was playing for my mother and my father and for the music, for Beethoven, for Mozart. That's who I was playing for. In 2013, Marina Orlovsky of Tarzana was given a copy of the book. She read, she read it in a single setting. I just couldn't stop reading it, she said. Orlovetsky, 61, grew up in Kharkiv, too, but didn't know the Drobsky Yar tragedy happened in her hometown. Her Soviet-era schoolbooks never mentioned the word Holocaust. For her, Dawson's story was key to unlocking the true story of her birthplace. She set out to find her and discovered Dawson was living in Atlanta. After spotting her phone number online, Orlovetsky called and the two spoke in Russian for nearly three hours. She told me everything Orlovetsky recalled. That was how our friendship began. I was fascinated by her story. It was like part of my life. A couple of months later, she met Dawson and her son at a Holocaust Remembrance Day event in Chapman University in Orange County. 
At 86, Dawson had been invited to perform her signature piece, Chopin's Fantasy Impromptu. She did so effortlessly from memory. The five pages of sheet music she had carried with her when she fled the Nazis were safe at her son's home. A few years later, Orlovetsky stumbled upon an article about the Holocaust and that Andre Bogancha had posted on had Facebook. His last name caught her attention. His ancestors had saved her friend on that bleak day in 1941. She sent him a message. I, to I just told him, please accept my biggest respect for you and your family, Orlovetsky said. She then followed up with a gift basket, which included a copy of Hiding in the Spotlight and a CD with recordings of Dawson's piano performances. Orlovetsky and Andrei Bogancha kept in touch over the years. As war once again approached Kharkiv, they exchanged messages. She stayed in touch throughout the Bogancha's escape and then made her offer of help. Once Andrei Bogancha accepted, Orlovetsky reached out to Greg Dawson and his wife Candy for assistance. They had been volunteering with Ukrainian mothers and children transport, uh, which helps Ukrainian refugees come to the U.S. I'm a son of Holocaust survivors, said one of the founders of the group, uh, Michael Baselier, a Chapman University law professor. Ba Baselier's mother would talk about growing up in a peaceful Ukraine, up until all of a sudden being bombed and running away with her family. The Russian invasion had felt like a repeat of the horror story, she, he said. In another coincidence, he was the one who invited Dawson to play Chopin at the Chapman concert where she and Orlovetsky had first met in person. UMAC Transport volunteers secured Alec Boganja's admission to Santa Monica College, and a local filmmaker, Andy Lahr, agreed to be his financial sponsor. I have an 18-year-old son. What if he suddenly was displaced, said Lahr, who hosted a Ukrainian family of five last spring. For me, it was personal. Michael Solomon, whose wife of 32 years died of cancer last year, offered to let Bogancha move into his poolside guesthouse in Santa Monica. It just felt like the right thing to do, said Solomon, 72. Greg Dawson booked Bogancha's flight, or Levesky's shop for necessities. All the pieces just came together, she said. On a wet January afternoon, nine months after she sent her WhatsApp message, Orlovetsky stood amid a group of well-wishers at LAX clutching a plate with a loaf of bread and salt, a welcoming gesture. When they spotted Bogancha making his way through the terminal, uh, the group cheered enthusiastically and waved American flags, then took turns embracing him. Orlovetsky FaceTimed Bogancha's parents to let them know he'd arrived safely. His mother sobbed as he smiled and waved. He's here, Orlovetsky said in Russian. He's finally here. Bogancha was disappointed that he never got a chance to meet Zana Arshaskaya Dawson, who died at 95 just days just before he arrived, but he quickly settled into his new life. He walked 15 minutes to school, his backpack slung on his shoulders, the school's logo on a sweatshirt. The surf and sand are less than two miles away, the view is starkly different than that in war-stricken Kharkiv. Any day now, Bogancha's parents and younger sister are expecting to receive approval to join him in L.A. He hopes to take them to Disneyland. I think we just need to be thankful for everything that we can, so that we can live, he said. We have such kind people around us. 
Since being in L.A., he's eaten at In-N-Out Burger, a rite of passage, gone on hikes in Malibu, taken the bus on his own to explore Hollywood, and walked along the Santa Monica Pier. He found he's found comfort by practicing guitar and befriending other Ukrainian refugee teens through the messaging app Telegram. Dawson had dementia for several years before... Uh, before her death, so her son wasn't able to tell her about the Russian invasion or how the family had been able to reciprocate after the kindness the Boganchas had bestowed on her decades ago. But the events have prompted Greg Dawson to reflect on his own legacy, including the birth of his granddaughter, who wouldn't be alive if not for the risks that the earlier generation of the Bogancha family had taken. Once all of the Boganchas arrived in California, Greg Dawson, who lives in Florida, plans to host a memorial service for LA in LA for his mother and invite the village of strangers who helped the two families reconnect. What a shame it is that she is not able to see this part of the his of the story. The way it comes full circle, he said. It's further redemption of everything they went through and everything the Boganchas did for them. As for Olavetsky, who served as the bridge between the two families, she says she just did what every normal human being would do. I just want to make them feel like that every good deed will be paid back a thousand times more when you do something good. That was Courage and Compassion Helped Change War Refugees' Destiny by Caitlin Brown from the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, April 4th, 2022. All right, now we got the two stories here. Uh, first from the same Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, April 4th, 2023. Iger calls DeSantis' efforts to punish Disney anti-Florida by Meg James. Walt Disney Company Chief Executive Bob Iger on Monday shot back at Florida Governor Ron DeSantis amid an escalating tussle over the company's political positions and its ability to self-govern its expensive resorts in the Sunshine State. The dispute has been simmering since Disney took a public stand a year, a year ago on Florida's so-called Don't Say Gay legislation that bans public school discussions about sexual orientation in kindergarten through third grade. After Disney's then-CEO, Bob Chappick, said the company opposed the bill, DeSantis lashed out, leading an effort to strip the company's self-governing powers for its parks in central Florida. The Burbank entertainment giant has since countered DeSantis' moves in an attempt to preserve its special status. During Disney's annual meeting of shareholders Monday, Iger acknowledged the tensions with DeSantis, which one Florida investor worried might continue to reverberate throughout the state. Iger described the governor as being very angry with the position Disney took. A company has a right to freedom of speech just like individuals do, Iger said. Uh, he seems to... He seems like he's decided to retaliate against us. Earlier Monday, the Republican governor ordered an investigation into whether Disney had colluded to illegally bypass a new state law that sought to strip the entertainment company of its governing authority in a 43-square-mile square region that is home to Walt Disney World, Epcot, and other resorts. In 1967, in an effort to lure the company to the state, Florida granted Disney sweeping powers over its land use. DeSantis seized on the dust-up with Disney, accusing Disney of being a woke corporation. The governor, who was widely expected to run for president, rallied political supporters saying Florida is where woke goes to die. 
At the governor's urging, Florida's Republican-controlled legislature passed a bill to eliminate the Disney-aligned Reedy Creek Improvement District and transfer its powers to a newly created Central Florida Tourism Oversight District, which is made up of DeSantis' political appointees. Iger took issue with the formation of the new board to oversee Disney's properties, saying it appeared designed to seek to, uh, to punish a company for its exercise of a constitutional right. That just seems really wrong to me, Iger said. But before DeSantis signed the measure into law in February, Randy Creek supervisors met and adapted a new development framework intended to outlast DeSantis and like-minded supporters by hollowing out enforcement powers over Disney by the new board. The Reedy Creek provisions preserve Disney's development authority in perpetu perpetuity, or at least until 21 years after the death of the last survivor of the descendants of King Charles III, King of England, according to the measure. DeSantis and other Florida leaders learned of the Reedy Creek gambit only last week. In Monday's letter to Florida's Inspector General, DeSantis demanded a thorough review and investigation into actions of the Reedy Creek supervisors earlier this year. The governor's office said the review was intended to explore whether civil or criminal laws had been violated. DeSantis blasted Disney's efforts. These collusive and self-dealing arrangements aim to nullify the recent past recently passed legislation undercut Florida's legislative process and defy the will of Floridians, DeSantis wrote in the letter to Inspector General Melinda Miguel and Mark Glass, Commissioner of the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. DeSantis instructed his appointees to explore the involvement of Walt Disney World employees and agents in the execution of the Reedy Creek actions and whether Walt Disney World received any financial gain or benefit from the actions of the previous board. The annual meeting marked Iger's first gathering with shareholders since he returned to the com company in November after Chappick was ousted. Since then, Iger has worked to reshape Disney's chain of command around its creative leaders, not business executives. He also initiated a plan to find $5.5 billion in savings, including by eliminating 7,000 jobs. During the meeting, Iger acknowledged that Disney stumbled last year in its efforts to oppose the Florida legislation, but he said the company has a right to stand up for cultural issues that it believes in. Iger also noted that Disney is Florida's largest taxpayer, that it employs more than 75,000 workers, and that it helps bring millions of visitors to the state each year, boosting the state's tourism. He also announced the company plans to invest $17 billion more in his, its Florida uh, parks and resorts over the next decade, which should create 13,000 new jobs. He said the company's relationship with the state government should be a two-way street. Our point on this is that any action that thwarts these eff those efforts simply to retaliate for a position the company took sounds not just anti-business, anti but it sounds anti-Florida, Iger said, and I'll just leave it at that. The company is celebrating its 100th anniversary this year as well as 50 years in Florida. Although the meeting was held virtually, Iger pre-recorded parts of his presentation from Walt Disney World in Epcot, Orlando, Florida in Orlando, Florida. We love the state of Florida, Iger says. That refle that's reflected in not only 
how much we've invested over the last 50 years, but how much we have given back in the form of jobs and community service, taxes, tourism, and other responsible business practices, Iger said. We've also always respected and appreciated what the state has done for us. Political overtones and punctuated political overtones punctuated the meeting that is typically a celebration of Disney fandom. One shareholder complained that Disney was taking a too overt role in promoting a progressive agenda, including gay pride parades at Disney parks. Over the last few years, Disney has turned from a place of magic for children to an ideological company, <coughs> company serving LGBTQ issues, the shareholder said during the meeting. Over and over again, we see how your films and entertainment are increasingly promoting the woke agenda. Iger responded that the company's goal was to be accessible to all people, and that over the decades, Disney stores have had an amazingly positive impact on the world. But Iger also tried to strike a balance, saying he recognized the concerns of some parents. Our primary mission needs to be to entertain. Iger said it should not be agenda-driven. We should be sensitive to the fact that parents have different levels of comfort with the content delivered to their children. We're committed to delivering age-appropriate content for family audiences while also telling stories that reflect the world around us. Outgoing Disney chairman Susan Arnold opened the virtual meeting and expressed gratitude for her 15 years on the board. The meeting was her last official act as she turned over the reins to incoming chairman Mark Parker, a seven-year member of the board and executive chairman of Nike. Shareholders also approved the elections of the company's 11 board members, including Iger. However, investors rejected three shareholder proposals, including a measure that would have demanded that Disney submit a report documenting its campaign support for state politicians in Florida. That was Iger Calls DeSantis' Efforts to Punish Disney Anti-Florida by Meg James from the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, April 4th, 2023. Okay, here's a follow-up article from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, April 5th, 2023. A Mighty Mouse in Florida Battle. With Bob Iger back, Disney's not messing around as Governor Ron DeSantis discovered by Ryan Founder. Credit Bob Iger for being prepared for the Florida question at the Walt Disney Company annual shareholder meeting. It was hard not to see the chief executive's opening video paying homage to the company's legacy in the former swamplands of Central Florida as a subtle taunt at Governor Ron DeSantis, who has been battling with Disney for control of the area that's home to Walt Disney World. Iger addressed the matter head-on during a Q&A session Monday. Responding to one shareholder's question, Iger criticized DeSantis for trying to punish a company for its exercise of a constitutional right. And that just seems really wrong to me, against any company or individual, but particularly against the company that means so much to the state that you live in, Iger added, calling the governor's efforts not just anti-business, but also anti-Florida. Disney's Florida battle started last year, when Iger's successor turned predecessor, Bob Chappick, acting under pressure from employees, denounced a Florida law that limits instruction of the sexual orientation and gender identity in younger grades. DeSantis, presumed to be gearing up to seek the Republican presidential nomination, shot back by trying to strip Disney of its special privileges in the 43-square-mile area 
uh, encompassing Disney's parks near Orlando. He signed a law to dissolve the Reedy Creek Improvement District, which has acted as Disney's own government since the Florida legislature established it in 1967. Ultimately, though, instead of doing away with the district entirely, the Santa seized control of it through a new legislation that allowed him to appoint members of the board who, under the prior arrangement, were essentially handpicked by Disney. But Disney's lawyers and, uh, had another idea to gum up DeSantis' plan. They secured a deal with the outgoing members that stripped the new board of its powers except the authority to maintain the roads and maintain basic infrastructure, according to one of the new board members. DeSantis will surely challenge Disney's attempt to evade state authority. He's already called for a probe into Disney's deal. How this will all play out is unknown. One thing's not in doubt during uh, this Sunday's shine, uh, uh, Sunshine State dispute and that is Disney's uncomfortable place at the center of U.S. political discourse. The tenure of the Q&A session uh, is the, at the shareholder meeting, often reminiscent of a contentious school board meeting, highlighted how much of a political football Disney has become, to borrow Chappick's phrase to describe the situation he tried desperately and with spectacularly futility to avoid in his tenure. Iger faced an AM talk radio call-in show's worth of barbs during the meeting. Some callers took an, an adversarial tone against Disney's woke agenda, as many cultural conservatives have taken to describing the company's stance on LGBTQ issues and attempts to create inclusive and diverse content. One man talked of Disney catering to an LGBTQIA+, however many letters you want to add, lobbies, and repeated tropes about efforts to groom children by exposing them to certain ideas about gender and sexual orientation. Iger handled the question firmly but respectfully, acknowledging that parents have different levels of comfort with the kinds of content Disney makes and delivers for its children. Our primary mission needs to be entertainment and then through our entertainment to continue to have a positive impact on the world. And I'm very serious about that, Iger said. It should not be agenda-driven, it should be entertainment-driven. That said, there was no sense that Iger was willing to back down from political stances he feels are important to the company's business and its employees. Iger's dealings with Florida are just one example of the not-messing-around approach he's taken to his second tenure at Disney so far as the company reckons with the costly streaming strategy that Iger put in place before he stepped in as CEO in 2020. Disney last week axed former Marvel CEO Ike Perlmutter, long a source of annoyance for Iger and a backer of one-time proxy uh, challenger Nancy Peltz amid the firm's planned 7,000 job cuts. Marvel executive Victoria Alonso was fired after she moonlighted by producing a movie for Amazon, although her legal counsel said there are other reasons for her ouster. If you happen to be on Disney's bad side, this is starting to feel like, to paraphrase a popular online maxim, a fool around and find out moment at the company. That was A Mighty Mouse in Florida Battle by Ryan Founder from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, April 5th, 2023. This article is taken from the April 4 edition of The Wide Shot a weekly newsletter about everything happening in the business of entertainment. Sign up at latimes.com newsletters. 
All right, here's something else from the same Los Angeles Times calendar section, Wednesday, April 5th, 2023. Reality series Racial Crisis. The departure of Mike Fleiss again shines a light on The Bachelor's Troubles by Greg Braxton. Michelle Young's love story on her season of The Bachelor did not end in Happily Ever After. Like most couples who have ended up engaged in ABC's popular reality franchise, she and sales executive Nati Olukoya split just months after she presented him with her final rose. But instead of nursing a broken heart, Young, the series' third black female lead, used her platform to support nonprofits, raise awareness about mental health, and more. The former school teacher also continued to hold up the Bachelor banner, hoping that the long-running dating franchise was poised to institute dramatic changes after facing years of criticism for its lack of racial diversity, cultural insensitivity, bullying of contestants of color, and a host of other shortcomings. Young was familiar with such turbulence from her own experience. She was ushered into The Bachelor during the chaotic 2021 tenure of lead Matt James, the first black bachelor, whose season unraveled amid a racism scandal that ultimately led to the exit of longtime host Chris Harrison. Although Young engaged with producers on the subject, seeing some progress in repairing the damage wrought during James's tenth, uh, season, she soon grew frustrated. She bristled as producers continued to cast white male leads, bypassing popular black uh, frontrunners. She became she become more up, uh, upset with the uh, franchise's failure to address the revelation during the 2022 season of The Bachelorette that contestant Eric Schwer had posed in blackface for his high school yearbook. Still, Young did not reach her breaking point until this year when another uproar over issues of race rocked The Bachelor. Greer Blitzer, a contestant on the season that concluded last month, had posted tweets since deleted, where she defended a former classmate posing it was a new heartbreak for Young, uh, one that hurt so much she threatened to abandon the franchise. You can't keep hurting a community of people and, and different cultures like this. Other, uh, she said, otherwise I'm out, Young said, she told producers. It's exhausting. How are you guys going to take accountability? Uh, how are you going to move forward? And now do you understand that moving forward means repairing? The commitments made re- recently on the Two Black Girls I Rose podcast uh, signed the depth, signal the depth of the crisis now facing The Bachelor, which has already been exi- exited by two previous Black Bachelorettes, Rachel Lindsay and Tashia Adams, and lambasted by its lone Black Bachelor. We have the opportunity to have those long, uh, those tough conversations about race, James told the Times last year, but the show missed the mark. Young declined to be interviewed for the story. The criticism of the franchise by its own black stars comes as the past and future of dating sh- the dating show are under fresh scrutiny. Last week's series creator, Mike Fleiss, announced that he was leaving The Bachelor after more than two decades, quickly followed by reports that Warner Brothers Television, which produces the show, had been investigating allegations of racial discrimination lodged against him by a number of employees. Warner Brothers Television and ABC declined to comment on the record for this story. In a statement, Fleiss admitted that the franchise didn't keep up with the pace of social change during his 21 years on the show and could have done more to improve diversity, but did not directly address the reported investigation. 
flies who launched the Bachelor in 2002 established the template that for years favored predominantly white cast and frothy glamorous love stories over the realities of interracial dating, mental health, and other topics. Based on the statements and actions of black cast members, however, the problems now appear to extend to the institution itself. Amid the flurry of racial controversies and recent seasons, sources close to the production say Fleiss remained an active participant in the series, appearing on set and delivering notes. Representatives for Fleiss claimed he had not been involved with day-to-day -day production for 10 years. Until his departure, Fleiss enjoyed the support of Warner Brothers and Disney-owned ABC, including in a 2012 legal battle against two black men who claimed in a class-action lawsuit that The Bachelor and The Bachelorette had a clear pattern of discriminating, discrimination barring people of color from being cast as leads. A judge dismissed the suit, concluding that the series' casting and creative content were protected by the First Amendment. Five years passed before Lindsay became the first black bachelorette, and nearly a decade before James assumed the mantle of the first black bachelor, the latter in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd and nationwide Black Lives Matter protests. For their part, Disney executives, who have repeatedly emphasized the company's commitment to diversity and inclusion, remain publicly mum about the troubles plaguing one of the company's most valuable properties. Whatever Fleiss's precise impact on the franchise's problem with race, he leaves as the upcoming series of The Bachelorette starring its fourth black lead, Charity Lawson, faces challenges. Taking over the reins starting with Lawson's season are Claire Freeland, Jason Ehrlich, and Bennett Grabner, who will serve as executive producers and showrunners. Former Bachelor Jesse Palmer will continue to host. The new executive producing team and Palmer are all white. That resembles the same scenario James faced when he was the star of The Bachelor. He has said that he felt betrayed after producers and then-host uh, Harrison showed little interest in showcasing his personal story as a black man who had encountered personal and professional difficulties. The situation worsened when photographs surfaced of eventual winner Rachel Kirkconnell uh, Kirk as an antebellum an anti South-themed party. Uh, Harrison defended Kirk. Kirkconnell in a combative interview with Lindsay on Extra, which only stoked the controversy further. Following that season, Jody Baskerville, who was black, was promoted to be the franchise's first black executive producer. Sources close to the franchise insist that a more thorough response to issues of diversity and cultural sensitivity is already underway. Producers have engaged the services of a diversity, equity, and inclusion expert who has already met with Lawson and will consult on bringing greater equity and inclusion to the romantic journeys of the entire cast. Uh, when, in addition, an outside agency, led by a woman of color, has been, has been brought in to lead the process of casting contestants for Lawson's season. Another woman of color has been promoted to a lead producer role and will work directly with Lawson. Whether these challenges will improve the franchise's vetting of contestants remains to be seen. People have exhibited offensive behavior or posted racist material on social media have been cast repeatedly in seasons led by black stars. Producers faced one such viewer during the 2022 season of The Bachelorette starring Gabby Windy after the photo resurfaced of Schur, her chosen mate, posing in blackface. 
Instead of addressing the controversy in the season finale, the show sidestepped the issue, angering Young and former Bachelorette lead Caitlin Bristow, who were guests on the episode. The show, Eric and, uh, and Gabby had a real opportunity to use their voice and acknowledge blackface, Bristow wrote in an Instagram post at the time adding that she thought the topic would be confronted during the episode, and she said it wasn't, and that's not okay. Young said on Two Black Girls, One Rose that when the controversy over Blitzer's tweets erupted the se- uh, uh, erupted this season, she ordered producers, on the de- uh, or producers to deal with Blitzer on air or she would step away. It was non-negotiable. During the Women Tell All episode, which reunited contestants who had been rejected by Bachelor Zach Shalcross, Palmer himself alluded to the franchise's troubled history in raising the subject of Blitzer's tweets. The truth is, we've done a very poor job in the past of addressing serious topics head-on, he said. We're not going to miss that opportunity tonight. Blitzer then faced Palmer and tearfully recorded her tale of heartache, claiming that she had neglected the core element of the controversy at her previous comments. In her previous comments, the the acquaintance performing blackface was racist. My defending it was racist. My ignorance was racist. And I'm just so ashamed. I'm deeply sorry I hurt the black community. When she finished, Palmer turned uh, to noted diversity and inclusion consultant Kara Banks, who was in the audience. Banks explained that she had met with Blitzer and had educated her about the harmful symbolism of blackface. She added, the reality is... We can't nicer way out of racism, so we can say the right uh, we can say the right thing, but what are we going to do? What actions are we going to take? For her part, Young praised Blitzer for taking accountability, a challenge she's now issuing to the Bachelor itself. It seems especially important uh, with the challenge of the guard that follows Fleiss's exit. For the franchise to be successful, there has to be representation across all communities, Young said. Greer is doing the work to change. You need to do the work as a franchise to change. There was reality series' Racial Crisis by Greg Braxton. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, April 5th, 2023. And now we turn to the LA Affairs section of the Sunday section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, April 2nd, 2023. And this is called Hoping for Harmony. I had been deemed geographically undesirable. Then Jay from Long Beach took me by surprise by Lynn Kessler. Lynn from Sherman Oaks met Jay from Long Beach. That's how the introductory email from eHarmony began. Surely they must be kidding, I thought. This is Los Angeles, where a man from Santa Monica turned me down for a first date because, as he put it, it's just too difficult to come over the hill. Then there was another potential suitor who told me, you just made the 15-minute cutoff meaning the time it would take for him to get from his place in Encino to my place in Sherman Oaks. I had been surfing internet dating sites for some time and was about ready to give up. I had admitted to being over 60 and posted a reasonably attractive full-body photo. The description of my interest was honest, if somewhat nerdy, not athletic, not religious, enjoy reading, classical music, serious plays, and documentaries. I was forthright about my advanced degrees, my dislike of shopping, and my left-leaning politics. The dating sites did come up with some remarkable matches. There was a man who was seeing a psychiatrist several times a week. He thought that I 
that because I was a psychologist, I could accept his numerous fears and phobias, unlike his former wife and girlfriends. It was also the man whose life's ambition was to visit every baseball field in the country, period. There was a man who was still married and another who had severe mobility problems, although neither of those important facts were mentioned in their profiles. There was the orthopedist who parked in the handicapped space because my knees give me a bad time on the ski slopes and the man who accepted my offer to pay for my share of a $10 lunch. Perhaps the strangest of all, match of all, was the man who told me within 20 minutes of our first meeting each other for the very first time, I don't need Viagra or Cialis. However, most of the men I met on through the internet were just ordinary people. They were looking, uh, they were looking as, as was I, for someone with compatible interests and lifestyle, someone to share the joys and sorrows of life. We all seem to have the same goal in mind to find someone to talk with, to take to a movie, to take for a walk, and yes, eventually, take to bed. Somehow I was missing the mark. The men I was meeting were dull and boring. They were absorbed with their stock investments or focused on what they ate for breakfast or they were dotting on their grandchildren. They had no sympathy for poor or oppressed people and described Native Americans with horrible racial epithets. Some had been divorced as I had been many years before. Some had been widowed, as I had been, except that, was in my except that in my case, I had been widowed twice. So after a year of too many uninteresting and disappointing internet dates, I was ready to go it alone, at least for a while. And then there was Jay from Long Beach. I just couldn't imagine what I would have, would have in common with Jay from Long Beach, an electrical engineer whose bio read, I travel an hour each way to my full-time job spend my weekends flying model planes and playing with my dogs. The picture he posted was a headshot with a blue-green nose. I later found out that the photo had been taken on a canoe trip which accounted for the extra-thick application of sunscreen. But most important, I wondered who in LA would drive 40 miles at least an hour for a date, especially a date with someone who has buried two husbands. We started with emails, long emails, and then progressed to phone calls, long phone calls. We talked about everything and anything, about politics, religion, history, philosophy. We talked about science, literature, and music. We talked late at night and early in the morning about our lives, our aspirations, our world views. Finally, there was the first date. Given my recent experiences, I wasn't expecting much. It was a Sunday afternoon in early November. I suggested that we meet on the patio of the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. This would be a very public place, as all internet dating sites strongly recommend, especially for women. Over coffee, we talked and talked until we were both hungry. After a quick meal in the museum cafe, it was getting cold and almost dusk. I said we should head, our, head out to our respective corners of Los Angeles. Oh, said Jay, looking rather surprised, but we haven't seen the museum yet. What I thought was going to be a coffee date, he thought was going to be a museum date. So we toured a few museum galleries and, on the way out, noticed that a string quartet would be performing shortly in the museum's auditorium. We had quickly agreed to take in the concert, especially because it was free. The concert ended at 7 p.m. and we were both hungry again. Marie Calendars was just a short walk up the street, so we headed there. By the time we finished dinner, Jay walked me several blocks to my car and then I drove him back to his. It was after 10 p.m. 
What was supposed to be a coffee date, or a museum date if you believe, Jay ver believe Jay's version, turned out to be a full day and evening date and the beginning of a wonderfully compatible, fulfilling relationship that has spanned for more than a decade. We are now married and parents of a darling miniature schnauzer whom we named Harmony, in honor of the eHarmony website that brought us together. Jay from Long Beach is now Jay and Lynn from Sherman Oaks. That was Hoping for Harmony by Lynn Kessler from the Sunday section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, April 2nd, 2023. The author is a retired clinical psychologist, perennial student, and social justice activist. She lives in Sherman Oaks with her husband, Jay, her son, Ken, and several furry pets. LA Affairs chronicles the search for romantic love in all its glorious expressions in the LA area. We want to hear your true story. We pay $300 for a published essay. Email laaffairs at latimes.com. You can find past columns at latimes.com slash laaffairs. All right, and now we go to this one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, April 2nd, 2023. On the trail of the real ringmaster. You can't understand politics if you don't understand wrestling stagecraft and Vince McMahon, says Abraham Josephine Reisman by Chaz Congas. The WWE's brand of sports entertainment has always existed in its own reality, sometimes unmistakably outlandish and sometimes resembling our own with the satirical volume turned up. It's a universe where someone could conceivably be in two places at once, especially someone like Vince McMahon. He has had the final say in the company for the better part of four decades while also portraying Mr. McMahon a Lynchian evil boss character whose on-screen appeal draws on McMahon's actual reputation for being a bit of a Lynchian evil boss. He has lied to wrestlers about their matches, engaged in petty business feuds, and been accused of abuses of power. Facing sexual misconduct allegations last summer, he tweeted his retirement in July, only to return as chairman in January. But through it all, we've known little about the real Vince until now. For her new book, Ringmaster, Vince McMahon and the Unmasking of America, Abraham Josephine Reisman has spent the last three years visiting the North Carolina region of McMahon's youth, connecting with his childhood friends, many of whom weren't aware that Vinnie Lupton they'd known was the controversial billionaire they'd been watching for years. She's also interviewed dozens of people who knew him at WWE, putting together a rich narrative of how Mr. McMahon operates. Reisman spoke to the Times about Mr. McMahon's self-invention, the WWE's heel turn, and the role it might play in threats to American democracy in an interview edited for length and clarity. Question. You mentioned in the book that prior to starting it, you hadn't followed the WWE for about 20 years. Was there any particular news event that inspired you to come back to it? Answer. The genesis of this book was a conversation with my spouse about what to do with my second book. One of us said, Vince McMahon, and that was a really good notion. A lot of it is just instinct, and then research to find out why you had that instinct. When I came up with the idea in 2020, Vince wasn't in the news. Once I started poking around, I didn't have to go very far to find that there's a lot of interesting narrative in Vince's life. There's no shortage of controversy. Question. You interacted with so many people from Vince's early days. Has anyone reached out uh, to them had anyone reached out to them before? Answer, no. Pretty much across the board, nobody had ever been asked about Vince, and definitely nobody had seen Vince recently. Vince walked away from North Carolina and never looked back. 
He decided his childhood is something he wanted to keep buried except for this brief period at the turn of the millennium when he would talk about it. But all of that was distorted, as it turns out. It was to serve a purpose. He wanted to build that Mr. McMahon personality, which at the time, at that time, one of was which was at the time his, one of his top priorities. He was giving an origin story of this altern, alternate character who was a complete ass from day one. But everyone I spoke to who knew Vince said that he was a nice kid, friendly, did well in school. He said he was the first member of his military school to be court-martialed. I found no evidence of that. It really is this fascinating dichotomy. He had the start of his pro wrestling career in his military, military school. He's enormously proud of his pro wrestling career and the reason he's obscured it is because he cares about his pro wrestling career. He wanted people to think he was getting into physical fights at a young age and never stopped, as opposed to his introduction to fighting being theatrical fighting. Question: You've researched decades of mainstream coverage of the WWE. Did you notice any shift of how his company was presented? Answer. He definitely presents his company differently at different times. The weird thing is the media kind of eats it up. The thing about wrestling is because the end product is regarded as silly, people think the process must be silly too. Nothing could be further from the truth. The process of making wrestling is extremely brutal and unfair and no one bothers to investigate that part of it. There have been moments where the media has turned on WWE, but it doesn't last. Vince has given them very different things to eat over the years. In the beginning of the 90s, uh, when he's hit with the steroid scandal, his response is obsequiousness. It's very unlike Vince today. But by 1995, after he's beaten the Department of Justice in his federal trial over steroids, there's a real shift where he's presenting the, the then WWF as this defiant organization that won't take criticism anymore. He starts cutting promos on the media, saying they're corrupt and out to get us, and that shifts the public's perception. The idea that made the WWE popular at the turn of the millennium was, we don't give a crap, we will do whatever. When they became that confrontational is when they became their most popular. Vince has, much like a wrestler, flipped the moral balance of his company many times, and it usually works. Question. Were you surprised when Vince returned as chairman in January? Answer. I wasn't surprised, no. I thought something like that was going to happen. I was in no way conclusive in the book that he was never coming back. The Vince McMahon era has time left as long as Vince is still kicking, which could be for a very long time. His mom lived to 101. He's still the ultimate power there. I knew he'd be back. Question. Two interviews in your book surprised me with one 80s WWF Women's Champion Wendy Richter and with one at War era WWF villain and real-life friend of Saddam Hussein, General Adnan. In the book, their feelings for Vince are much warmer than one would think. Did you find it a challenge to separate the truth from the kayfabe, the wrestling stagecraft? Answer. Sure, of course. It's wrestling. I did the best I could. If anything, it was helpful to have the baseline knowledge that everyone in wrestling is trying to work you. I hope that people take my version of the research and build on it. I'm a journalist. I did my best, and I have a pretty good instinct for when I'm being heavily, uh, when I'm being heavily worked. I tried to avoid everything that wasn't cross-referenced. It's a unique medium, but as the lion comes baked in a public way. Question. 
it was also surprising seeing how many political figures popped up. We all know that Vince's longtime friend with longtime friendship with Donald Trump, but there's also Ron DeSantis and Rick Santorum. It calls to mind the similarities between modern WWE and modern politics. Has wrestling influenced politics or merely come to reflect it? Answer. This is the great question. I was not trying to say wrestling made politics this way. It was not Vince McMahon unmade America. It's Vince McMahon and the unmasking of Amer- unmaking of America. The experiences with Vince trained Trump uh, to be uh, the kind of rally speaker he is and have the kind of fungible reality strategy that he has. But I'm not trying to say wrestling made politics what it is now. What I'm trying to say is that the models Vince has used to take power are the same models that have been used to take power in politics and in business. The point of this book is that you can't understand politics right now if you don't understand kayfabe. I don't think anyone can argue, after having read this book, that wrestling was not a useful model for understanding what's happening to the rest of society. Once you've said, I'm a liar and a bad person in the way society is currently structured, there's really little way to punish that person. I would like to see people like that stopped, but it's a much tougher uh, proposition than merely fact-checking and saying you're bad. That's unfortunately still the strategy for so many people. I think understanding how Vince has succeeded is one of the first steps to understanding how those who want to fix this society can approach those tasks. That was On the Trail of the Real Ringmaster by Chaz Congas from the Los Angeles Times calendar section, Sunday, April 2nd, 2023. And now we've got this one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, April 6th, 2023, Mesmerizing Music Kaleidoscope. Stephen Reich is, a vital, is as vital as ever with a new composition, book, recordings, and more, by Mark Swed, music critic. Steve Reich's music, always often spectacularly so, knows where it's going. It may surprise you. Startlingly, sudden shifts to meter, meter and or harmony are a trademark. You might not expect to end up where you finally do, but the scores are impeccably structured. Form is foundational. Compositional technique never falters. Meanings come out of substance. If you, d- if you can't feel the pulse, see a doctor. Reich is now 86, and his early classics such as drumming, music for 18 musicians, and different trains have been with us for a long time. They have had an enduring influence on modern music, be it classical, pop, jazz, and world music, dance, and visual arts. All that was apparent Saturday night when the L.A. Phil New Music Group, conducted by Brad Lubman, dedicated a Green Umbrella concert to Reich at Walt Disney Concert Hall. Unfortunately, though, his influence could not serve as a capstone of the orchestra's annual community-based 12-hour new music extravaganza, Noon to Midnight, as originally planned for the day's closing concert. It felt victim to scheduling and whatnot, but Saturday's Reich concert, which included two important new works, not only stood well alone, but also arrived amid a bunch of new Reich recordings and a remarkable book of conversations. The evening's obvious showstopper was Reich slash Richter, a project between Gerhard Richter and the composer. Working with filmmaker Karina Belts, the German artist made a mesmeric uh, 40-minute film from his book Patterns of his abstract canvases painted in the 1990s. 
Richter then turned to the Master of Musical Mesmerism for the movie soundtrack to be performed live by a 14-player chamber ensemble of strings, winds, and pairs of vibraphones and pianos. The eye is amazed at Richter digitally dissecting his paintings, reduced to their pixelated essence. Lines of floating colors slowly materialize onto the screen like a Mandela uh, coming to life. Just before resolving in into the original paintings, Richter reverses the process. The paintings go back to their original stripes. If there is anything that defines Reich beyond pulse, it is such patterning. He fractures melodic and rhythmic figures into complex, com, uh, complex arrays so propulsive that a, that's a, that a listener's mind starts to explode. The sensation is first excitement and then at its best, not ecstasy, but rather a seemingly contradictory spirituality. Wright doesn't follow the film literally, other than maintaining a few necessary timing cues. His pattern has a life of its own. About halfway through, the pulse slows down so much that you barely attend, it, attend to it. Color fields of harmonies saturate the score. One intense chord after another is grippling, gripplingly sustained, creating a shimmering quality that pervades the hall. The last section is very short. The bouncing meters hastily return. We can stay in the mystical wonderland forever, paralyzed by awe. Reich rushes us back to reality as Richter returns to his lines. In Richter, we have reassigned dust-to-dust inevitability. Reich ends with a bang. What does it all mean? A Los Angeles, Los Angeles Philharmonic co-commission, Richter, uh, Reich Richter, was supposed to have been performed here shortly after it was composed in 2019. That got delayed by the COVID-19 pandemic during which Reich, uh, Reich wrote Traveler's Pro, uh, Prayer for two sopranos, two tenors, two vibraphones, strings, and piano. At a time when no one was going anywhere, Reich turned to the Jewish Traveler's Prayer something that might be recited before boarding an airplane as a trip to possibly other unknowable realms. Each of the three sections is based on a Hebraic chant, two of which are traditional and one original, and adapted texts from Exodus, Genesis, and Psalm 121. Here the traveler seeks divine protection. The tone of the score, from first note to last, is a stained sublimity. Nothing is said or indicated of the pandemic, but nothing I've heard comes as close to capturing the sense of strangeness, the changed world in which clock time uh, lost its dominance, or the dramatic lessening of our usual distractions that forced us to pay new attention to our surroundings. For Reich, the chant tunes become sources of fascination. He employs them forward and backward, right side up and the, and the notes upside down the way that medieval musicians he adores once did, and the way Schoenberg, whom he, also doesn't, who he, whom he doesn't adore, also did. He proceeds with a contrapuntal logic he never leaves home without, yet he also gives up some of his ego to the material, letting it develop with the freedom it needs. The high voices offer sweetness and cheer, yet this is relatively slow music throughout, a novelty for Reich and the pulse, though there uh, doesn't blow your mind. At the premiere in Amsterdam in 2021, which was streamed live, Traveler's Prayer suggested Monteverdi made new. That performance lasted close to 17 minutes. 
On Saturday, as interpreted by Lubman and the L.A. film musicians, the singers were Leela Subramaniam, Ashley Fabian, Arnold Livingston, Geis, and Edmund Rodriguez. The timing was close to 12 minutes. Oddly, it still felt like slow music, but it sounded like nothing else old or new. At times, it sounded as if strings could have been the, uh, the singers and the singers the strings. The vibraphones and piano added shine. The richness of sound proved heart-stopping prayer. During intermission, I asked Reich about the new tempo. He very much approved. Reich is no mystic. His music is direct and calculated. You could also say the same about Bach, who found the divine in whatever resources he had at hand. Traveler's Prayer finds it in Reich's profound response to basic chants and melodies. And the L.A. Phil timing happened to be impeccable, with Passover and Easter at hand. Maybe this, uh, become, may this become a tradition. The program began with a joyous performance of a joyous earlier piece, Double Sextet, saying that it is a much a tribute to Lubman and the L.A. Phil as it is to the composer. Reich has his historically an uneasy relationship with, the orchestra, with orchestras. The music can seem almost impossible to count. And then there is Reich's love of aggressive amplification, which was modest and warm this time. But unlike a few others, the L.A. Phil has been performing his work since the 1980s. And for the younger musicians, his rhythmic demands have, been, have become natural and, better still, loving. As an example of how young, younger classically trained musicians now turn to him, the Colburn Contemporary Ensemble will perform his hour-long Music for 18 Musicians at Zipper Hall on Thursday. As an example of how well the L.A. Phil says plays Reich, there is the orchestra's outstanding recent non-such recording of Runner and Music for Ensemble and Orchestra, conducted by Susanna Malki. That joins Colin Curry's cheerful, forthcoming recording of Music for 18 Musicians, Ensemble Link's exuberant take on uh, drumming, and the Mivos Quartet's suave survey of Reich's Three Strings Quartet. And to make sense of it all, there is con Conversations. Rather than an autobiography, the book articulately and bracingly shows Reich engaging in engrossing dialogues with a variety of interviewers, including conductor Michael Tilson Thomas, Broadway icon Stephen Sondheim, Radiohead's Johnny Greenwood, Belgian choreographer and Teresa de Kiersmaker. It's a kaleidoscope portrait of Reich from 19 angles, all illuminating and all very much him. And that was Mesmerizing Musical Kaleidoscope by Mark Swed, music critic, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, April 6, 2023. Something from JewishJournal.com. During eating, healthy eating during Passover. The problem is that many of the traditional Passover foods are simply not healthy for many people. By Deborah L. Eckerling, March 30, 2023. Judaism is packed with food customs. Passover is no exception. The Seder itself overflows with traditional foods, recipes passed down through families and desserts that evoke our childhoods, Michael Tannenbaum, founder of the website Consciously Kosher, told the journal. 
then it's literally eight days of eating those same foods. The problem is that many of the traditional Passover foods are simply not healthy for many people. Perhaps you have dietary restrictions due to a pre-existing health condition. Maybe excessive matzah and processed store-bought Passover food mess with your system, or you might just tend to overeat. But this Passover, it doesn't have to be this way. Did you know that there are ways to eat healthy during the holiday? Tannenbaum said it's as simple as avoiding the bad foods and eating tons of the good foods. Here's how he breaks it down. The bad foods. The four main ingredients to avoid on Passover are foods with cottonseed oil, MSG, white sugar, and potato starch. But potato starch foods in particular are devoid of nutrients and will spike your blood sugar. Specifically, avoid all jarred gefilte fish, cottonseed oil, potato starch, MSG, soup mixes, MSG, vasili, MSG, mayonnaise, cottonseed oil, potato chips, cottonseed oil, and nearly all kosher, kosher uh, Pesach yogurts, which have dozens of grams of sugar per serving. Passover cereals like crispy O's have a very high simple carbohydrate and sugar content, and those infamous candied fruit slices are full of sugar, dyes, and artificial flavors. Hint, read the ingredient labels very carefully. Avoid any products that contain cottonseed oil, MSG, white sugar, and potato starch. The good foods are those that are in their natural form, such as fruits, vegetables, almond flour, and quinoa. Minimally processed foods, like certain yogurts and cheese, are also good. Keep in mind that some healthy foods don't require Passover certification, while others do. If you're Ashkenazi, there's an astonishing array of fruits and vegetables that can be eaten that are not kitaniot. If you're Sephardic, then you are even luckier, because you can eat rice, beans, and tons of other healthy ingredients like amaranth and buckwheat. Rather than buying processed and pre-made foods, you can make your own gefilte fish, soup stock, pat pastries, macaroons, and other desserts. You can even make your own mayonnaise using uh, avocado oil. It takes 10 to 15 minutes. Hint, time is not infinite, so you can't make everything yourself, but even tackling a few of these can transform your health and your holiday. If you're gluten-free, try oat matzah. Also, there are a lot of familiar foods you can make with almond flour or coconut oil. Two years ago, my wife and I came up with Passover sliders. The little buns are made of almond flour and psyllium. They really mimic the texture of real bread. Along with the savory cumin-flavored burgers, a slice of avocado, some lettuce, and a handful of bell peppers, it's a delightfully fun meal. To go healthy this Passover, Tannenbaum suggests going light on matzah products, as well as Passover foods in general. Instead, eat lots of fresh fruits, vegetables, and nuts. Rather than seeing healthy food as yet another restriction in a holiday filled with them, this is an opportunity to explore new ways of eating that will carry forth into the rest of the year, Tannenbaum said. For more tips and food guides, download Tannenbaum's Consciously Kosher Guide to Passover ebook on consciouslykosher.com slash over slash Passover ebook. That was Healthy Eating During Passover by Deborah L. Eckling. From JewishJournal.com, March 30, 2023. Now let's read some ads from uh, the LA Jewish Home, March 16th through the 29th, 2023, Volume 1, at number 11, your favorite bi-weekly family reading.
and we go to this one. Save yourself a trip to urgent care. Talon nurses to go. Your wellness, your location. We offer vitamin and hydration infusions, blood draws, rapid strip cultures, rapid PCR COVID and rapid PCR COVID testing, rapid influenza A and B. Call 323-829-5520 for Rochelle Scheinberg, RN, BSN, and PHN, or 213-710-0893 for Kumi Unger, RN, BSN-BC. Here's this one. Eilat Nahum, Certified Family and Marriage Counselor. Improving communication, repairing trust, conflict resolution skills, discussing co-parenting. With 35 years experience of, uh, in education. Phone is 310-309-0405 or 310-467-7411. Email is eilatecounseling at gmail.com. Alright, we have this one right here. Elevate your business. Come and experience the world of digital marketing, SEO, social media, uh, paid ads, and Amazon and Walmart. Call 818-404-0860. Email is cmnassy at gmail.com. All right, we've got this one. Weddings, headshots, family portraits, bar mitzvahs, galas, Jonah Light Photography. Life Events Illuminated. Website is gallery.jonalight.com. Phone is 818-406-3882. We have this one. A perfect present. Gifts and houseware. Servingware, tableware, trendy juteka, host hostess gifts, uh, vort gifts, wedding registry, welcome baskets, Teflon and Talis bags. Address is 8 a 183 Detroit Street in LA. Phone is 858-405-5084. On Instagram at aperfectpresent.la. Website is www.aperfectpresentla.com. We have this one. Get your groceries delivered to you to your door for free with a $150 minimum purchase. Delivery area is based on zip code which can be viewed on the website, laglatmart.org. Glatmart at 8708708 West Pico Boulevard. Phone is 310-289-6888. All right, we've got this one. DJ Band Lighting. DJ EZ, E-Z-Z-I. On Instagram at DJ EZ Boy, B-O-I. Phone is 323-985-2981. Email is ezzi at ezmusic.com. We got this one. Are you being harassed by debt collectors? Are you being denied credit due to credit reporting errors by creditors? Are you being charged hidden fees by banks or financial companies? Unlawful wage garnishments or bank levies? Identity theft or accounts on your credit report that you don't that don't belong to you, you can be entitled to compensation. Call Consumer Counsel Group for a free consultation today, 323-937-0400, or email 
AJG at uh, CurrentConsumerCounselingGroup.com. Consumer Council Group, Amir J. Goldstein, Esquire, Attorney at Law. And we got this one right here. Sometimes the farthest journey is from the shelves to the table. Help finalize the journey. It's our community. It's our responsibility. Address 345 North Librea Avenue, number 208 in LA, 90036. Info is info at t-o-m-c-h-e-i-l-a dot org. Phone is 323-851-1000. Touch of Kindness Incorporated. Touch Shaba. Uh, Tomahe Shabbos is a California nonprofit tax exempt 501c3 organization. ID number 75-3002144. Tomahe LA. And ladies and gentlemen, we are just about to come to the end of another edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. So for everything, that is happening with us Jewish folk right here in the city, the state, the nation, Israel, and the world. Find it all right here. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace.